Welcome to TanahStudy.com. This is Naima Novetsky. Today will be our final class on Sefer Vayikra, as we learn together the final verses of chapter 27, and then try to put together some of the main messages of the book as a whole. The last few verses of the chapter deal with three distinct sets of laws, those concerning firstborn animals, those dealing with a special type of a vow called a cherem, and those dealing with ma'aser, or tithes. These are all tangentially related to the laws of Arachin, the vows and valuations that we discussed last class, being exceptional either in that they deal with items which cannot be consecrated because they are already holy, or cases where one can consecrate an item, but one cannot redeem it. Let's begin where we left off last class, with the laws of firstborns in verse 26. Ach b'chor asher yuvukar l'ashem b'fhimah, lo yakdish ishoto. Im shor, im seh, lahashem hu. Only the firstborn among animals, which is made a firstborn to Hashem, no man may dedicate it, whether an ox or a sheep, it is Hashem's. The verse begins with the word ach, however, cluing the reader into the fact that this law stands in contrast to what preceded it. Until now, we'd been looking at various cases of dedication to the Mikdash. This verse teaches that there is one category of animal which cannot be dedicated to Hashem, firstborns, for the simple reason that they are already consecrated to God by the Torah itself. Verse 27. If it is an unclean animal, then he shall buy it back according to your valuation and shall add to it the fifth part of it or if it isn't redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. According to Ramban, this verse refers to a, first, a firstborn animal who is impure, and which therefore has no inherent holiness, and as such, it can in fact be dedicated to the Mikdash for Betek Habayit, to the general temple fund. The verse teaches that if someone does dedicate such a firstborn, and then wants to redeem it, he must add a fifth, as in other cases of redemption. The next two verses deal with the laws of a special type of a vow called a chirem. Verse 28. Notwithstanding, no devoted thing that a man shall devote to Hashem of all that he has, whether of man or animal or of the field of his possession, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to Hashem. This verse too begins with Ach and also serves as a contrast to the laws of Arachim discussed earlier in the parasha. It teaches that the laws of Charamim, a special type of oath or vow, are different from those of regular vows of consecration. When making normal vows of consecration, the dedicated object may be redeemed. In contrast, if someone is Macharim something to Hashem and intends that the item go to the priest, the item can no longer be sold or redeemed, but instead moves into the possession of the priest. Verse 29 con- continues with a different law related to Achirim. No one devoted who shall be devoted from among men shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. On first read, this verse sounds very strange. What does it mean that if someone is macharim a person to God, that if he devotes a person to Hashem via achirim, that the devoted person cannot be redeemed but must be killed? 
Why should the alternative to redemption be death? Does this mean that to begin with, the person is being consecrated to die for God? Is that not antithetical to Judaism? In the Gemara, in Mesachat Arachin, two opinions are brought as to how to understand our verse. According to Sam, the verse is speaking of someone who is punished with a death penalty and is about to be executed, and either they themselves or someone else wants to consecrate their value to God. Our verse says that this is a meaningless vow, as the man is not worth anything as he's about to be killed. Others explain that the verse is coming to dispel the possibility that one might think that people who are sentenced to death by human courts can ransom their lives for money. Our verse teaches that this is not allowed. If someone is chayav mitah, if someone is deserving of capital punishment, he must receive the death penalty and one cannot give a monetary ransom in its debt. Ramban, however, suggests that really the simple sense of the verses is not like either of these explanations. Rather, the verse is speaking of a specific type of a vow in which a nation or a king might vow to kill an enemy. In such cases, the person consecrated, meaning the person whom the nation swore to kill, cannot be redeemed through money. As an example of such a cherem, Ramban points to Bimidbar chapter 21, which tells how Bnei Yisrael are attacked by the Canaanites and how they vow to Hashem, Im naton ta'am biyadi, et If you will indeed deliver this people into my hands, say Bnei Yisrael, then I will utterly destroy their cities. We are told in the continuation of the chapter how after Hashem brings salvation, the nation does indeed destroy the cities as promised. As another example of such a cherem, Ramban points to a story from the end of Sefer Shoftim, the story known as Pilagesh Begiv'ah, the concubine of Giva. The story is a complicated one, and not all of it is relevant to our point. But in short, it tells how due to atrocities condoned by the tribe of Binyamin, the rest of Israel went to war against them, making an oath that any who did not join in the battle would die. It turned out that the people of a certain city, Yavesh Gilad, had not joined, and so they were all put to death, fulfilling the law of our verse, that no redemption can be made in such a case, and all must be killed. Ramban closes his remarks by suggesting that a misunderstanding of our verse is what led the judge Yiftach to his disastrous sacrificing of his daughter. In Sefer Shoftim chapter 11, we are told, when Yiftach goes to battle against the Ammonites, he makes a vow to Hashem that if he is successful, whoever should exit the door of his house to greet him when he returns will be sanctified to Hashem and brought as an Olah offering. When Yiftach returns, and it is his daughter who emerges to greet him, he is horrified because he thinks that our verse mandates that his vow cannot be nullified and that his daughter cannot be ransomed, but that she must be killed. Not realizing that the verse refers only to vows made by kings or leaders regarding enemies or rebels, not chas v'shalom, to a vow that is made to bring a human sacrifice. With that, we move to the last set of laws in our parasha, the laws of tithes. Verses 30 and 31 speak of the second tithe, ma'aser sheni, which mandates consecrating one-tenth of one's produce to Hashem. Bechol ma'asar ha'aretz, mizera ha'aretz, mipri ha'etz, la'ashem hu, kodesh la'ashem. All the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is Hashem's. It is holy to Hashem. Verse 31, ve'im go'o yig'al ish mi'masro, chamishito yosef alav. 
If a man redeems anything of his tithe, he shall add a fifth part to it. Our verses teach that one must consecrate a tenth of one's crops to Hashem. From Dvarim chapter 14, we learn that this tithe, as opposed to the tithe that is to go to the Levite or to the poor, goes to the owner himself and is consecrated in the sense that he is to eat of it before God in Jerusalem. In Sefer Dvarim, we are told that if a person lives at a distance from Jerusalem, he may redeem his fruit for money and then use that money to buy foodstuffs in Jerusalem. Our verse teaches that if one does redeem it, he must add a fifth, as we saw with other redemptions. What is the purpose of this mitzvah? If the owner is allowed to eat of the produce himself, why make him bring it all the way to Jerusalem to do so? What is gained by eating of it in Yerushalayim specifically? In Sefer Dvarim, the verses explain that the goal is Leman tamad kol hayamim, so that you should learn to fear your God all the days. Various commentators elaborate on what is meant by this. How does eating one's crops in Jerusalem lead to fear of God? Rashbam implies that the point is simply to get people to make their way to Jerusalem. There, the site of Hashem's dwelling, the Mikdash, and the accompanying service of the priests and Levites will strike awe in the hearts of the people, infusing them with Yerat Shemayim, with fear of heaven. The Nitziv instead suggests that the point is to increase fear of God by increasing Tamud Torah. He assumes that most people likely brought their tithes to Jerusalem during one of the three pilgrimage festivals when they needed to go there regardless. But as the festivals are but a week long, this is not nearly a long enough time period in which to finish an entire tenth of one's crops. As such, the Nitziv tells us, al Cain, O Yoshev ba'atzmo b'Yerushalayim achar haregal, v'harei ein lo esak sham ki im tamud v'yerah. O shemeniach l'tamidim sheb Yerushalayim, u'bazeh ha'tamidim nitrabim u'mipanesim. Therefore, either he himself will remain in the city after the festival, and there is nothing else to do there but to engage in learning Torah, or he will leave the rest of the produce for the students who are learning in Jerusalem, thereby providing for their needs, enabling them to learn Torah. And so the Nativ concludes, V'zehu tachlit mitzvat ma'aser sheni, l'hagdil Torah. As such, the purpose of the mitzvah of ma'aser sheni is to increase Torah study. The Sefer Achinoch explains similarly, but suggests that since most people like to set up a residence where their money is, a person, knowing that he must bring a tenth of his crops to Jerusalem, will likely make sure that some member of the family goes to live in Jerusalem, to learn there and be provided for through his fruits. According to the Sefer Achinoch then, the purpose of the mitzvah is to ensure that almost every family has some tamit chacham within it who has gone to Jerusalem to learn. The next two verses of the chapter move from the tithing of crops to the tithing of animals. Verse 32. All the tithes of the herds of the flocks, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth shall be holy to Hashem. Our verse describes how animals were tithed. The owner would have his sheep or cattle walk by his staff one by one and every tenth would be, would be designated for Hashem. We know from Chazal that the animal's blood and fat was sacrificed, and its meat was given to the owners. Verse 33 speaks of the prohibition against exchanging or redeeming these animals. Lo yivakir bin tov l'rah v'lo yimirenu, ve'im hamer yimirenu, v'hayahu u'tmurato yakodesh lo yiga'el. 
He shall not search whether it is good or bad, neither shall he change it. And if he changes it at all, then both it and that for which it is changed shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. In contrast to Ma'aser Sheni, which can be redeemed, this Ma'aser cannot be redeemed. Nor can one exchange the consecrated animal, replacing a good quality animal with a poor one, or vice versa. Whichever animal was the tenth to pass by the staff is the one consecrated, be he great quality, mediocre, or poor. The Sefer HaChinuch suggests that the purpose of this mitzvah is the same as that of Ma'aser Sheni an incentive for people to send family members to learn in Yerushalayim. Likely, too, the bringing of both Ma'aser Sheni and Ma'aser Behema serve as recognition of Hashem as provider. As one counts one's sheep and sees Hashem's blessing, he separates every tenth one as a gift back to God in thanksgiving and recognition of all of Hashem's gifts. So to put our chapter together briefly, it begins with voluntary dedications to God in the Mikdash, and concludes with two obligatory dedications, firstborns and tithes. The two sets of laws highlight how though a person might sometimes on his own recognize the need to express gratitude to Hashem and bring his own gift. This is not always true, and sometimes people need a reminder, a concrete action that must be done to help them see and acknowledge the hand of Hashem. Before we turn to the final verse of the chapter and book, I want to take a few minutes to summarize Sefer Vayikra as a whole, looking at some of the major themes and concepts raised by the book, and also some of the main exegetical disagreements surrounding them. As we've mentioned in the past, Rav David Tzvi Hoffman suggests that Sefer Vayikra splits into two main units. Drawing off the verse, Va'atem tiyuli mamlechat konim begoy kadosh, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, he suggests that each half of the book matches one of these terms. The first 17 chapters focus on being a mamlechat koanim and deal with laws connected to the Mikdash and related priestly functions, focusing mainly on the sacrificial service and the laws of purity. These, to a large extent, deal only with man's relationship to God in the Mikdash itself. The rest of the Sefer speaks of being a goy kadosh, a holy nation, and it tells of laws relating to the holiness of person, time, and land. This section of the book continues to deal with man's relationship to God, but not only in the confines of the Mikdash. It further speaks of man's relationship to himself, the other, and nature as a whole. Given this overall structure of the book, one might say that the themes of sacrifice, purity, and holiness are the main ideas developed in the book. Let's go through each one briefly, touching on some of the important ideas that surround them. As we said, the book opens with a discussion of the various offerings, the Ola, Mincha, Shlamim, Chatat, and Asham, discussing in much detail the laws regarding each. Despite the many laws, though, one central question is not explicitly addressed anywhere in the chapters. Why did Hashem choose this mode of service rather than any other as the primary means of worship? Is animal sacrifice really the best way to seek forgiveness? or for thanksgiving, or otherwise connect Tasha? Regarding this question, there's a spectrum of opinions among Jewish thinkers, with some maintaining that the sacrificial service is an ideal, and others viewing it as merely a corrective to negative beliefs and not inherently positive at all. This difference of opinion is, is most well known through the positions of the Rambam and Ramban, Maimonides and Nachmanides. 
Rambam, in his Mor Nebuchim, The Guide to the Perplexed, maintains that sacrifices are not an ideal form of worship and were instituted only as a means to wean the nation away from idolatry. He explains that even though animal sacrifice was not Hashem's desired mode of worship, God nonetheless permitted it since that was the form of worship to which the nation was accustomed. Living among idolaters who served their gods through sacrifices and temples, the Israelites would have found it unfathomable had such practices been forbidden. Thus, knowing that the people cannot change their behavior overnight from one extreme to another, Hashem maintained some aspects of the service with which the people were familiar, but ensured that they sacrificed to Him alone. As such, He hoped to gradually wean the Israelites away from idolatrous practices. Ramban, Nachmanides, presents a diametrically opposed view of sacrifices, seeing them as inherently positive and an ideal way to worship Hashem. He suggests that they invite divine inspiration on a national level, and he views them as a prerequisite for Hashem's presence to dwell in the Mikdash. As evidence, he points to the fact that the divine presence filled the tabernacle only after the bringing of the offerings on the eighth day of the consecration ceremony, and he notes that the word korban means to come close, and as such, the word itself hints to the sacrifice's purpose, to bring humans closer to the divine. Rambando does not explain why receiving divine inspiration was contingent specifically on animal sacrifice. In ancient times, meals often accompanied and served to seal a covenant. As such, it's possible that the sacrifices were meant to constitute such a meal. If the Mishkan was meant to be an extension of the revelation at Sinai, the bringing of sacrifices could be seen as the continuous renewal of this covenant at Sinai and the accompanying revelation of Hashem. Others stand somewhere in the middle of these two positions, viewing sacrifices neither as a concession to human beliefs nor as an ideal way to connect to the divine, but rather as a necessary corrective to sin. Though all would agree that the Hatat and Hasham offerings serve a role in the atonement process, this position is unique in suggesting that all the other sacrifices do as well. How, though, do sacrifices accomplish this? Ramban suggests that sacrifices serve as a substitute or redemption for the sinner, as it is killed in the individual set. In watching the animal slaughtered, the person is forced to recognize that it should have been his blood which was spilled had it not been for Hashem's mercy. The impact of this experience should help prevent him from sinning further. Rav Yosef Bechoshor, in contrast, asserts that the atonement process is necessary to enable people to start afresh. If there is no way of cleansing oneself from sin, people would be less likely to be wary of future sins, thinking of themselves as stains regardless. So knowing that one's slate has been wiped clean provides an incentive to subsequently remain pure. This, though, doesn't account for why the process must involve specifically animal slaughter, rather than a recitation of al or the like. Rabag applied that had a person simply confessed their sins or repented in their hearts, the person would not think that this sufficed to achieve penance. So Hashem provided an active ritual. Words alone do not affect a person in the way that an active process does. Of course, these three approaches to sacrifices are not mutually exclusive, and it's possible that the sacrificial system is meant to accomplish all three goals, 
to help the nation move away from idolatry, to bring them close to the divine, and to atone for any sins along the way. Moving to the second major theme of Sefer Vayikra, purity and impurity. This is the subject of chapters 11 through 16, which are filled with tons of specific laws regarding both what causes defilement and how one can be purified. Discussing various sources of impurity, such as bodily emissions, childbirth, and the somewhat mysterious affliction referred to as therat. But despite all the detail, the verses fail to address one important question. What does it really mean to be pure or impure? What is the common denominator between the various scenarios in which someone is designated as impure? What does this status connote? I'll review just two of the takes on this question. Rav David Tzvi Hoffman suggests that the system of impurity is actually a symbolic system with every form of impurity symbolizing a different type of sin. The various forms of Tumah, of impurity, all necessitate distancing oneself from either the Mikdash or from others in Israel, representing the repercussions of sin. Rav Hoffman suggests that corpse defilement represents transgressions against God, for death stands in contrast to the eternity of God and is the punishment for betraying him. As such, this condition mandates that one not enter temple grounds, meaning one not enter the camp of the Shekhinah. Various bodily emissions represent certain sexual or sensual sins and require further distancing, even from the Levite camp. Finally, Tarat, which requires being expelled also from the camp of Israel, represents transgressions against one's fellow man or society as a whole. It's important to note that Rav Hafman is not suggesting that a person stricken with Sarat or someone who had a bodily emission is actually committed any sin, only that the condition represents sin. The impure status and the system as a whole is intended to remind one of the need to walk upright with God and to distance oneself from sins against God, oneself, and one's fellow man. A second, very different approach to impurity, perhaps the more well-known one today, connects impurity with conditions that represent death and decay, or the loss of potential life. This idea is already suggested by Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, author of the Kuzari, and has been elaborated upon by many over the centuries. It suggests that a corpse is considered a primary source of Tumah, for it represents decay and death in the highest sense. One who has had a seminal issue and a menstruating woman are impure because there has been a loss of potential life, while the mitzvah, whose body is encompassed with skin lesions, is impure because he appears to be slowly wasting away. At first glance, it would seem that a birthing mother should not be grouped together with these other conditions, as she should represent life rather than death. Some have suggested, though, that especially in ancient times, due to medical dangers involved in childbirth, all birthing mothers had a very close brush with death. Alternatively, others have suggested that though the mother is bringing life into the world, she is losing the life that had been growing inside her. And so this scenario too is reminiscent of death. Both approaches to impurity suggest that the impure state is meant to lead to self-reflection, either regarding sin or one's mortality. During the time that one is impure, one is distanced from the Mikdash, but not necessarily from the divine. For if the various conditions that cause impurity do indeed lead to self-reflection, this will bring man closer to God in the long run. Interestingly, 
The Rambam points to this forced distancing from the Mikdash as one of the benefits of the institution of impurity. If one were permitted to come close to the Mikdash daily and never had a break, one would begin to take it for granted. The forced break makes one long to return to the divine realm and appreciate what one is missing. Distance makes the heart grow fonder. This then takes us to the second half of Sefer Vayikra and to the third main theme of the book, Kedusha, Holiness. This part of the book moves out of the realm of the Mikdash into the realm of society as a whole, speaking of holiness of person, time, and space. It includes an assortment of laws dealing with almost every aspect of life, including laws relating to agriculture, business, justice, and care for the unfortunate, all the way to the laws of festivals and the unique mitzvot of Shemitah and Yovel. Once again, as we saw with, re with regard to the concept of Tumah, though we have chapter after chapter dealing with a certain concept, Kedushah, a list of laws that are meant to ensure such Kedushah, and even an explicit command, Kedoshim you, be holy, the concept of Kedushah itself is never really defined in Torah. We discussed the issue at length when we opened up Parashat Kedoshim, pointing to several possible understandings of the term Kedushah and the specific mitzvah of Kedoshim to you. One common denominator between the various understandings is that they all understand the word Kedushah to mean separation. While Rashi speaks of separating from sexual violations and other prohibited behavior, Ramban instead highlights how sometimes we have to separate even from what is permitted. He focuses on the idea of self-restraint as a path to holiness. One's path to ethical perfection must begin with self-control. Only if one can control temptations and one knows how to set limits will he be able to then perfect himself and walk uprightly. Alternatively, one might suggest that Hashem is telling us that to be holy means to separate ourselves from surrounding cultures and their norms of behavior. We must make sure not to follow their customs and practices, but instead to follow Hashem's norms of behavior, as laid out in Parshiot Kiddoshim, Emor, and Bahar. Parshiot that we just noted are jam-packed with various laws discussing man's relationship with both God and his fellow man. Sefer Vayikra then opens with the laws of the sacrificial service intended to help us invite the divine into our lives and give us an opportunity for connection. It continues with laws regarding impurity, conditions which might isolate man from the Mikdash, but simultaneously give him an opportunity for self-reflection and individual growth. The book ends with laws of Kedushah, which on one level are about separation, but perhaps more accurately are about elevation, and which actually we require not isolation, but interaction with self, God, society, and land. We are directed to fulfill Hashem's obligation in all walks of life and to thereby infuse all with sanctity. So to close with the last verse of our chapter, These are the commandments which Hashem commanded Moshe for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. Chazak, chazak, benit chazek.